With the Buddha's awakening and realizing the truth of dukkha, the cause of dukkha, the end of dukkha, he also realized the path that one must develop to reach or to realize for themselves the end of suffering. And this fourth noble truth, the path, is, is called the Noble Eightfold Path. And there are eight qualities of mind that must be developed to fulfill this path. But those eight qualities can be reduced to three trainings. And the first is the training in what is called sila, or living in harmony. It involves right speech, right behavior, right livelihood. It's what we do here when we take the precepts. Through careful attention to our intentions and having compassion and care for ourselves and others, we modify our speech and behavior in order to arrest the suffering that comes with careless speech and behavior. And it gives us the opportunity to live in this community harmoniously. And if you think about it, The opportunity to live among and so intimately with so many people and to do it harmoniously is pretty rare. Probably even in your own life. And so we get this exquisite opportunity to reduce some of our tormentedness, some of our suffering, by just careful living. But even if we live carefully, speak carefully, act compassionately, we get to watch our mind. And as you know, there's some tormenting going on in there. And so another practice is needed, and the Buddha taught samadhi, or the purification of the mind, as a way of subduing the suffering of the obsessive mind. When we can do that, as we are practicing here, when we can do that temporarily, we get to momentarily and sometimes for extended periods of time to enjoy the happiness of seclusion. Coming on retreat here at Spirit Rock, away from the distractions of our life and the demands of our life, being physically secluded feels good. It, it tends to make us a little lighter, a little more open, a little more relaxed, a little more enjoying ourselves physically. And when we can seclude the mind too, 
the happiness is even that much greater or that much subtler. But we don't live in a retreat center and we probably wouldn't like this lifestyle forever. And that's just the problem with tranquility practices. They don't last forever. And eventually we've got to go back to deal with the stressful conditions of our life. And so the Buddha taught a third practice, a third training in the Eightfold Path, which is the training in panya, or the development of wisdom. It is the purification of our understanding, our wrong views. It is essentially the practice of vipassana, learning to see deeply the way things are, so that we can bring our life into harmony with the way things are and stop struggling. So these three trainings, sila, purification of speech and behavior, samadhi, purification of mind, panya, purification of views or understanding, is the path to freedom from suffering. And so... This that we are doing here, the development of a concentrated mind, is the practice of samadhi. As a foundation for that, we also are practicing sila, but we are not here specifically going on to develop vipassana and right understanding. Nevertheless, we should understand that samadhi is a requirement, really, of fulfilling the path. And it is a support for the practice of vipassana and the purification of our understanding. So tonight I want to speak more fully about samadhi, the qualities of mind that are required or are developed, and also the training of samadhi. And to point to some of the challenges, some of the benefits, some of the experiences, some of the understanding gained from this practice that we're doing here. Samadhi, the practice of samadhi, the the training of samadhi involves three path factors. Right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Sally spoke about working with the factors that enhance concentration and that hinder concentration last night. And in her talk, she actually spoke about right effort when she said, much of our effort here is to avoid those situations, those behaviors, those times, those mental states that cause torment. That's one of the right efforts to avoid. Second right effort is to abandon. When unwholesome states of mind arise, the hindrances, to work to abandon them, to put them aside temporarily or to Uh, Overcome them in some way. Second right effort. The third right effort is to 
cultivate wholesome states of mind. And that's what we're doing here with all of our effort to connect, to sustain, to see clearly. That's cultivating the wholesome states of mind that really lead to mindfulness and all that comes with it. And when there are some, there is some momentum to the wholesome states of mind, then to nurture them, to bring them to a fulfillment, a fruition, a maturity, which is the forthright effort. To avoid, to abandon, to cultivate, and to uh, develop. These four efforts are required. We can't just kind of fall into mindfulness, concentration, and awakening. We aren't already awakened. We may have that potential, but we've got to work at it. Ramana Maharshi says, No one succeeds without effort. Mind at peace is not your birthright. Those who succeed owe their liberation to perseverance. But we should be careful in making these four right efforts. Not to get caught in striving. And that's a balance, isn't it? How to be effortful. How to know the goal. How to know what direction you're moving in, but not grasp it. So that you can practice in a balanced way. Each step of the way. This isn't, a right, this isn't a talk, a full talk on right effort, but I just wanted to mention it because so easily our desire for relief from suffering causes more suffering. And it's in this careful attention to our making effort where we will find the balanced path, the balanced effort. Right effort is the first of the factors of development of samadhi, that second training. Right mindfulness is the second. Now, Ramana Maharshi just said, and the Buddha said many, many times, it's right effort that conditions the arising of right mindfulness. And with that mindfulness, the Buddha says, for the purification of mind, for overcoming sorrow and distress, for the disappearance of all pain and sadness, for realizing the liberated mind, one should abide ardent, clearly aware, and mindful. For overcoming all sorrow all distress, all stress, for the disappearance of all pain and all sadness, for realizing liberated mind, one should be mindful. Do you believe that? That's what the Buddha said. That if you're mindful, this is the result. We should at least give it a try. I mean, it might be right. 
But only we can find out for ourselves. We can't take his word for it. So what is mindfulness? If it is such a powerful condition for disentangling our heart and mind from suffering and the causes of suffering, we should understand what mindfulness is clearly. Mindfulness is awareness. It's knowing clearly the present moment's experience. And in that, there are two elements that are involved. There's the experience itself, and there's the knowing of it. Mindfulness requires that we know the object and know that we know the object or the experience. With that, we can establish a relationship to it that is not struggling, that is not demanding, that is not expecting, that is not other than the way things are. Mindfulness is awareness. It is a bare attention, meaning it has no agenda. Mindfulness has no agenda. It's not trying to do anything. It's not trying to avoid anything. It's not trying to explain anything. It's not trying to rationalize anything. It just sees things as they really are. It knows, mindfulness itself knows, as it is. With that, the characteristic of mindfulness is to go into the experience in order to know it from the inside out. Not to observe it from out here and see it down there, but to go into it to taste it, to feel it intimate, to become intimate with each moment's experience, to really feel what it is. Not to be so objective that it's kept at an arm's distance. Not to be so subjective that you're totally enmeshed with it. But to find that place in the middle where there is full, intimate contact and clearly knowing it. Upandita says of mindfulness, he says, A life without mindfulness is like food without salt. Kind of bland. Maybe nutritious, but kind of bland. It's mindfulness that brings us so close to the experience we can really taste its flavor. The function of mindfulness is to remember. One of our colleagues has coined the famous phrase it's easy to be mindful, it's difficult to remember. Be mindful. Isn't it always easier to be mindful when we're narrating what to do? You know, that first sitting of the morning after breakfast for the first 10 minutes, we're saying, sit comfortably, pay attention to the breath, connect, sustain, do that. And you can do it if you if you listen and follow the instructions. It's easy to do. And then we stop narrating, and the mind goes elsewhere. It's difficult to remember to be mindful, but it is the function of mindfulness 
to do that. That's mindfulness's function, is to remember. The more you remember, the more mindful you are. Or I should say, the more mindful you are, the more you remember to take note of the present moment's experience. When I was first practicing with Upandita in 1984, he came to IMS on the East Coast to teach a a three-month retreat. And there were about 20 of us doing a retreat with him. And I was having an awful hard time. I'd only been practicing for about eight, eight or ten years, and I really didn't have much momentum to my practice, and I was struggling. I was doing the best I could, but I wasn't very successful. And I was report. We had to report every day. And I was following this one woman who was doing very well. And the doors wide open. And one day, in the middle of the retreat, she's in there so excitedly telling Upandita about remembering her past lives and everything that was happening in those past lives. And wow, she was so excited. And Upandita was listening. Yeah. And I was thinking, past lives. Holy. So I. My frustration boiled up to the surface, and I went in for my interview, did my bows, and blurted out to Upandita. I said, what are we supposed to be doing here anyway? Remembering our past lives or something? And he looked at me calmly and said, no, remembering just this life. And it's mindfulness that remembers this life, this present moment of this life. Because mindfulness comes face to face with this moment's experience, it doesn't give the mind any opportunity to tell a story about the experience, to put any spin on it. But nevertheless, even though that is mindfulness's task, we, in our... conditioning, assign all kinds of jobs to mindfulness. And so in our practice of being mindful, we often try to get rid of our experience that we don't like. And this is an agenda that we attach to mindfulness, somehow thinking that, well, if I look at this discomfort mindfully, it'll go away. Don't you believe that sometimes? We do, you know, and we think, oh, I, I'm not looking at it right. I've got to look at it right, and then it'll go away. That is an agenda that mindfulness doesn't really have. That's your agenda. And so we have to see that and kind of set it aside. And, and you know, maybe mindfulness, careful attention, will see through it, and maybe not. Another agenda that we get entangled in with mindfulness is, is trying to figure something out. You know, now that we've been sitting here for a couple of days and we're kind of calm, we're kind of cleared out and the distracting things of our life have settled down and, and the big problems of life come up, now we can really figure them out. No, you can't. Mindfulness doesn't figure anything out. It doesn't solve any problem. That's your agenda. Mindfulness just sees things as they are. Maybe in the clarity of the seeing another way of dealing it with will emerge. But that's just incidental. That's not the task or the agenda for mindfulness. We also try to explain. We, we assign the task of explaining why we're experiencing what we're experiencing to mindfulness. Why am I experiencing this pain? And somehow, if we look at it carefully and mindfully, 
we think we're supposed to know, mindfulness doesn't explain anything. It just sees it as it is. This is the nature of this moment's experience. So too, do we sometimes use mindfulness to analyze, to compare, to evaluate our experience. Knowing how to analyze, compare, and evaluate is good. It's something we need to know how to do to make the right decisions in life or to make decisions that are more skillful in life. But that's not mindfulness's task. So we should be careful in our merely trying to be with the breath. Not to explain, not to figure out, not to evaluate, not to judge, not to do, not, not to do anything other than know the breath. The proximate cause of mindfulness is clear perception. Clear perception is the ability to recognize what's happening in this moment. Perception is recognition. So that if you recognize the in-breath, you're more likely to recognize the out-breath. It's just that simple. Clear perception in one moment conditions or supports or is the cause for clear mindfulness the next. So when we attend to the breath, the instruction is breathing in. Know you're breathing in. That know you're breathing in is not just a random phrase. That's to cultivate clear perception. And in that cultivation of clear perception, you'll be strengthening the likelihood of being mindful the next moment. Proximate cause of mindfulness is clear perception, to take note of, to recognize. We can apply mindfulness to everything we do in life. It's not just a task for sitting on the cushion. In every activity of our life, at home, at work, socially, in our community, our life will be better off if we do it with mindfulness. And the qualities that mindfulness most engenders in our ordinary life activities are called the paramis. The paramis are the forces of purity, the ten qualities of mind, of the awakened mind. Generosity, loving kindness, patience, truthfulness, uh, balanced mind, understanding, determination, renunciation. These qualities of mind are not particularly Buddhist. They're not particularly esoteric and they're certainly not mystical. They're qualities of mind that we all have or to a degree. But through mindfulness, we can cultivate them in our daily life. And it's important to because these paramis, these very human the qualities of any good human being, are the foundation for liberating insight. The depth of your liberation is dependent on the development of your paramis. And everything you do in life, at work, at play, is an opportunity to develop the paramis. This is the practice for we as householders, 
or if you're living as a monk or a nun, also, these are the practices to support your liberation. So this training of the Fourth Noble Truth, the second training, this development of samadhi or tranquility, dependent on right effort, which is necessary for right mindfulness. Right mindfulness is the requirement for right concentration. Now, how does that work? Sometimes we get questions are confused about the relationship between mindfulness and concentration. Well, in a moment of mindfulness, of course, there is some concentration. But in the development of concentration as a practice, it is the continuity of mindfulness, meaning the more frequently you're mindful, which deepens concentration. As I mentioned in the instruction or maybe the earlier talk, in this development of samadhi or stillness, the collected mind, concentration is not primarily how narrow the range of object you're paying attention to. It's not how small the area of, at the tip of the nostrils you're observing but rather it is the frequency of noting it or the frequency of being mindful of it that actually collects the mind. The mind is distracted. The mind goes here, the mind goes there, the mind goes wherever it wants to go. And it is collecting the mind moment after moment after moment after moment and applying it to this general area, the nostrils. It is the collecting of the mind that concentrates the mind, that kind of pulls it all together so that the mind can do its work more efficiently. And what is the work of the mind? To know. The concentrated mind knows things as they are. That's what the mind does. The mind knows. If the mind is not concentrated... It doesn't know very clearly, doesn't know very accurately, and it doesn't know very frequently. But as we develop mindfulness, and the mind becomes more collected, more concentrated, more powerful, we know more frequently, more accurately. So now I want to talk about what goes into the concentrated mind. What is going on in a moment of concentration? The primary factor is called, as Sally mentioned last night, ekagata or ekagata. I always call it ekagata, but I'm not a Pali scholar, so maybe Sally's right, ekagata. Well, anyway, that doesn't matter. What it means is single-pointedness. It doesn't necessarily mean so much that the mind is aimed at a single point, but it means that all the mind has come together on a single point. The mind is collected. This quality of mind, or this capacity of mind to come together 
in a single unified whole is ethically neutral. Imagine a thief in the middle of the night coming up to a window to try to break in is very, very focused, very quiet, not to step on any dry twigs, to kind of get to the window and just kind of open it very carefully without tripping off, without wakening the cat or the dog or tripping off the alarm. Very focused, very concentrated. You can, you can be as concentrated in an unwholesome state of mind. No, this isn't quite right. I almost said you can be as concentrated in an unwholesome state of mind as a concentrated, but that's not true. You can be very concentrated in an unwholesome state of mind, but you can be much more concentrated in a wholesome state of mind. But nevertheless, this quality of mind is ethically neutral. Therefore, we need to be careful. When we concentrate our mind, as we are doing here, we want to be sure to keep it aimed towards wholesome activity. Because if it gets entangled in some unwholesome state of mind, it is really going to magnify it. Maybe you had an unwholesome state of mind today. You know, some irritation at somebody or some memory came up and it was really bothering you for something, for some reason. Now with your deeply and very concentrated mind, it's not just a minor irritation. It's like a traumatic memory. So be careful what you look at with your concentrated mind or what comes into your view because we can get entangled in unwholesome states of mind. The characteristic of this ekegata or single-pointedness is to not scatter, to not be distracted, and to not waver. That means it comes together at a single point. It doesn't waver. It doesn't debate about what to pay attention to, it's right there. And that's the ability of it, to pick one object out of all the sensory experiences that is happening in every moment, is to pick one of them to pay attention to. With our intention and our aspiration, let's hope it's the breath of the nostrils. It manifests as peace of mind. Single-pointedness, manifests as peace of mind. But let me explain what is meant by this peace of mind, because I use peace in another sense often. This peace of mind refers to the calmness that we experience when our emotions are subdued, not denied, not repressed, but also not active, and when the restlessness of the ruminating mind subsides. So when the ruminating, the restlessness of the ruminating, and the kind of the emotional (laughs) upheavalness settles, that calmness is the manifestation of single-mindedness, single-pointedness of mind. Again, the the proximate cause of this concentration is, as Sally mentioned last night, Sukha, happy comfort of mind and body. The qualities of the single-pointed mind are that it is stable, meaning it's not 
moving around between objects, but it's stable on a single object. Out of all that it could be attending to, it focuses on one. It is steadfast, meaning it enters that object and doesn't move. It doesn't waver. It is not agitated by other objects, but it stays stably with that one. And it is solid. The mind is solid, meaning that all of the other qualities of mind are under the command of single-pointedness. Single-pointedness becomes a power in the mind. It becomes a controlling faculty of mind, this ikagata. And when it becomes a controlling faculty of mind, everything else that's going on in the mind supports it, or it marshals everything else to its purpose. The Buddha said, there's no, I'm paraphrasing the Buddha, there's no limit to the power of a concentrated mind. There's no limit. You can't get to the end of a concentrated mind. So what that means for us, practically speaking, is there's always room for improvement. So we need to get used to there being room for improvement, because that's the way it's going to be for a long time. But he also said, if you reflect on the power of a concentrated mind, it can drive you a little batty. Because what the power, what a concentrated mind can do is, well, beyond our imagination, beyond our comprehension. We can hear of, as Philip told a couple of stories the other night, the power of a concentrated mind to withstand terrific physical abuse. And come out of it and just and be okay. Well, some of you have heard stories of Deepama, teacher that some of us knew uh, living in India, and the things she could do with her powerful mind. I mean, it's, well, it's beyond my ability. And it's, it seems pretty mystical, pretty magical, pretty... But the Buddha said, there's no limit to what the mind can do. So we have right effort, which is necessary for developing mindfulness. The continuity of mindfulness deepens concentration, or deepens samadhi. In the development of samadhi, as Sally mentioned last night, we overcome the hindrances. The mind that is hindered by attachment, Greed, aversion, doubt, restlessness, sleepiness, laziness, confusion, agitation, bewilderment. The mind that is hindered by these states of mind is not pure. And it is mindfulness that purifies the mind. Mindfulness puts aside these hindered states of mind, these hindrances, if you will, by noticing them. In the development of samadhi, it means when you notice 
that your mind is entangled in some hindrance. If you can just recognize that and go back to your primary object, the breath. For as long as you're on the breath, your mind is not hindered. When you leave the breath, in this case, your mind is hindered. So we're not, in the development of samadhi itself, we're not turning our attention to the hindered state and investigating it like we would do in the development of insight or vipassana, where we pay attention to that hindered state of mind in order to know it more clearly, how it works, how it comes, how it works, what it feels like, how long it lasts, what it does to the body, what it does to the mind, what it conditions, and how it disappears, or how it leaves the mind of its own accord when the conditions that brought it forth cease to exist. But in some of the practice, we're not doing that. We're not investigating these states of mind, but rather we want to just put them aside. To the extent that we can put them aside, go back to the breath, and hang on to the breath, those hindrances can't get in. So we repeatedly connect and sustain, as Sally mentioned last night, the first two of these jhanic factors, or the first two factors conducive to development of concentration. We touch and we sustain that touch on the primary object, the breath. And we keep sending our mind to that point, the breath, the collected mind to that point, over and over and over and over again. In time, the momentum of the mental energy heading towards the breath is so strong that anything else can't get in. There may be irritating sights and sounds and smells and even body sensations occurring, but your focus or the momentum of the attention to the primary object is so strong that it doesn't waver. It doesn't get distracted. It doesn't get confused. It stays on task, so to speak. And in that, on ta- the momentum being on task, the irritation that might arise, or the desire that might arise, or the judgment, or the fear, or the anger, cannot get into the mind. And so we, walk, we can walk around, not really oblivious to what's going on, but very insulated from reacting to what we see and hear and feel going on. So this insulation, really, is the effect of samadhi. Samadhi insulates us from reacting in an unwholesome way with any of the hindrances. So as long as we can keep our attention on the chosen object, the breath, the mind is pure. The mind is purified of the hindrances. And when the mind is purified of the hindrances, and it is now doing what it does to know best, it takes great delight. The mind loves to be unhindered, just like us. But 
the mind loves to do its work unhindered. And when it is unhindered, and it can just be with the breath over and over and over and over and over again, you may think that's boring, but the mind loves it. The mind loves, and so in that, just, just, it's so happy, it just loves to be with the breath. Well, it doesn't need to be the breath, it can be anything, but it loves to be unhindered. And in that unhinderedness, the mind takes great delight. This delight is, as Sally mentioned last night, the third jhanic factor, this piti, the beginning of piti. It starts with interest, zest, but it becomes delight when there's a certain momentum to the continuity of mindfulness. Now, the interesting thing about this kind of delight, when the mind is pure and it can do its work of knowing unhindered, the mind can even take delight in unpleasant experience. You can't take delight in unpleasant experience. When it's painful in your body, you don't like it. But the mind doesn't care. It just wants to know clearly. And so when the mind is unhindered, when it sees unpleasant experience in the body, it still is happy. Wouldn't that be good? You go through life, even unpleasant things make you happy. That's, that's, what we're, that's what we're developing here with samadhi, is this capacity to know things as they are and to not get caught, not get caught in reaction. Where am I? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. However, <laughs> once, this, uh, once this delight really starts to mm, mature, we can't help but get seduced by it. We like it. We like delight. We like ecstasy. You know, we're just kind of hanging out, just kind of ecstatic, just kind of, even, it doesn't matter what's happening, you're just kind of joyful. But if we don't, if we're not careful, we'll get attached to it. Now, joy is one thing, attachment to it is a hindered state of mind. So if we're not careful with this joy, the hindrances will come up again. And then, downhill, pretty soon we won't like pain again. You know? So we want to be careful not to get caught by this ecstasy. The only way not to get caught by ecstasy is to note it. In this case, what we mean, developing samadhi, is we don't turn to this experience of ecstasy, you know, this pleasant waves of stuff going through the body, but rather, we just go back to the breath. Ignore that ecstasy. Don't get caught in that joy. Just go back to the breath. If you do, you will further strengthen, further develop, further collect the mind, so that it becomes more concentrated. We're not saying, I don't like that ecstasy, that joy, or that pleasant stuff in the mind. And let me just mention, what we feel in the body when the mind is clear and, and ecstatic is the, the, the feelings, the pleasant feelings in the body are conditioned by the mind. You know the waves that Sally was mentioning last night, how we feel it in the body. Waves and, and shudders and trembles and tingles and your hair stands on edge and stuff like that. 
those physical experiences are conditioned by the purity of the mind. Okay. So, when we don't pay attention to those manifest, those physical manifestations, but rather we go back to the breath just to be with the breath again in its very simple way, then we can actually go beyond this kind of getting caught with this, uh, in this ecstasy. When then ecstasy gets a chance or PT gets a chance to mature. And when PT matures, it kind of smooths out. And then instead of, you know, mainlining in this, this intense pleasure, it, we're kind of on a drip feed. You know, it's kind of like, wow, it's a little smoother. It's, a little, it's just kind of mellow. And this is the fourth jhanic factor that Sally mentioned last night, sukha, where the mind and the body, happy comfort of mind and body. Now imagine what that's like. <laughs> yeah, it's just happy. Because remember, the mind is pure. You know, there's no aversion to anything. There's no attachment to anything. There's no sleepiness, there's no restlessness, there's no, there's no doubt about anything. The mind is doing its work, clearly, to know, and it's happy. It's not excited anymore. It's mellow. Now, when the mind is that mellow, and it's seeing things clearly, do you think it wants to go anywhere else? It doesn't care. It's perfectly content to be right here. This is the ekagata. The development of the mind that is collected at one point with no interest to go anywhere else. Whether the experience of the breath is exciting or boring or painful or subtle or gross or fast or slow or deep or shallow, the mind doesn't care. It's happy. This happiness or this sukha and this one-pointedness, this this coming together in one-pointedness, will last as long as you keep paying attention to the breath. So, if you can keep the momentum on the breath, you can continue to enjoy this kind of happiness. Isn't that better than kind of struggling with the hindrances? It is, isn't it? The Buddha said, you know, when you, are, when you have obsessive, addictive, compulsive, repetitive patterns of thought in your mind, it's suffering. And it is suffering. You know, you've been watching your mind. And when it just goes over and over the same old ground and it's just kind of churning out story after story, oh, poor me, and I don't like this, and I want that, and it's torture. The only way you can get a handle on it, purify the mind. Develop samadhi. Pay attention to your breath. Or, in this case, pay attention to breath. You can pay attention to metta, you can develop compassion, you can pay attention to a color, a sound, whatever it is, but you keep sending your mind to one object over and over and over and over again, and it will purify the mind. And in this way, we become free of a subtler level of suffering. Not the gross suffering of, you know, the disharmony that we experience within ourselves and in our relationship. But we're free of the suffering of the tormented mind. And for as long as we practice that, 
we can, we can experience, we can enjoy this happiness. The Buddha said, the mind is difficult to control. Swiftly and lightly, it moves and lands wherever it pleases. It's good to tame the mind, for a well-tamed mind brings happiness. The mind is difficult to control. That we can all confirm. Swiftly and lightly, it moves and lands wherever it pleases. And you can't stop it. Until and unless you tame the mind. It's good to tame the mind. Because a well-tamed mind brings happiness. Samadhi, as a training, is to purify the mind. We can purify the mind without all of this ecstasy and bliss and all that. We can purify the mind, just put aside the hindrances. But if we keep putting aside the hindrances, then this more developed state of mind will come. With this developed state of mind, we have a choice. We can use it to develop deep tranquility through absorption. And this would be uh, aspiring to attain jhana. Jhana is a deep absorption of the mind in the object of your choice. Or we can use that purified mind, which has no hindrances, which is joyful in the face of any experience, and we can use it to develop insight. In either case, the mind has to be pure. We can purify the mind by paying attention to the breath. And with that purified mind, we can use it to aspire to and attain absorption or jhanas, or develop insight. How do we choose? Why would we choose one way or the other? Well, the Buddha, the Buddha taught uh, jhana practices. And he taught many different ways, many different practices for obtaining deep absorption. And we here are also learning how to purify the mind and maybe some of you will get to jhanas and that would be good. The benefit of a jhana is you're free from the uh, stressful conditions of your life for a while. Some of you have already started to ask me about how do we take this home, you know, anticipating that there's some stressful conditions out there. Well, just take your breath. I mean, as long as your nose is with you, you can, uh, you know, you can avoid the stressful conditions if you train the mind. For as long as you, you know, have that ability to be with the breath, then you can be free of those stressful conditions. Nevertheless, eventually you probably have to face them. Samatha does not face stressful conditions. Jhana does not face stressful conditions. It avoids them skillfully, it's insight that turns to look at stressful conditions. And the more developed the tranquility is, 
uh, the less reaction you have to those stressful conditions. And so you can turn with your calm mind to the difficulties in your life. Relationships and health and you know, neighbors and financial insecurities. You can look at all that because you're calm. The mind is taking great delight in everything it sees. Even in insecurity. It can, it can be not distressed by that. But you can see it. You can see its true nature. You can understand it. What it's doing to your mind. This is through the development of insight. Through the practice of vipassana. So there's a difference. Jhana brings you tranquility. For as long as you want. But eventually, you have to turn, you have to leave that jhana or leave that tranquility to face the conditions of your life. And with that, then you have to practice vipassana. So they lead in two different directions. It doesn't mean that samatha is an inferior practice. It means it is useful for a certain purpose, for calming the mind, for giving you this immediate, though temporary, relief from the stress of your life. That's good. And when you feel able and capable and have the urgency or aspiration, you can use that tranquility to look at the causes of the stress in your life. And, hopefully, find a way to be free of it through the practice of Vipassana. mind that is secluded, that is unhindered, doesn't go to the past, does not expect the future, is not lethargic, it's not over-energetic, it's not overly concerned, and it doesn't turn away from anything. It has that... It's, it rests in that midpoint in the present moment, not seeking, not avoiding, not looking to the past, not looking to the future, not lethargic, not overexcited. It's just resting there. It is said that there are four experiences of mental seclusion. And the first is very simple when one reflects on their generosity. It can bring a kind of uh, seclusion to the mind and a kind of joy to the mind, when one reflects on one's acts of generosity. The second seclusion is to develop this deep tranquility through meditation, or to develop samadhi or jhana. That's the second seclusion of mind. The third seclusion of mind is to develop insight knowledge, true understanding of basically the Four Noble Truths, to really come to know suffering or dukkha, the cause of dukkha and the end of dukkha. And the fourth seclusion of mind is to realize the unconditioned, 
to really see beyond the conditions that cause suffering in our lives. Samadhi is essential. In whatever level of seclusion you aspire to, the development of the unhindered, tranquil mind is a requirement. The work we're doing here is just that. Learning how to calm the mind. How to put aside the hindrances, that which torments the mind. So that we can then use this pure mind for our purest aspiration. It's a useful practice. It's not easy. The Buddha said, the mind is really difficult to tame. Any effort you make is a wholesome effort. So let's sit for a minute. Let the words quiet down. This pure mind, which is the source of all things, shines forever with the radiance of its own perfection. It is a jewel beyond all price. This pure mind, which is the source of all things, shines forever with the radiance of its own perfection. It is a jewel beyond all price. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.